Well, welcome back. Two nice week, no crows currently. <laughs> um, let's ask God to keep them from showing up. Dear Lord God, we're very grateful for your word and we're grateful for the life of Abraham that is um, so rewarding and such a, uh, a great man to walk the way of faith before us. We'd ask that you would teach us from his goodness and from his failures. In your son's name, amen. Well, we're in the second week of four weeks on the life of Abraham. This, um, as you know, last week we had him called out of Ur of the Chaldees, went to Haran, came down to Canaan, then on to Egypt, made some mistakes in Egypt, gave his wife away, she considered that a mistake, um, got her back, they head back to Canaan. Um, Now, Sarai, verse, top of the verse there, 16.1, Abram's wife bore him no children. She had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my maid. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, apart from the rather strange sexual mores of the 1850s B.C., um, there's something, it's not merely a man with more than one wife. He has her as a wife, but he has his wife's handmaid as a wife. Because the handmaid, because she's owned by Sarai, her children will be Sarai. So Sarai's trying to get, you know, sort of a private adoption going. You know, uh, have my husband uh, get my maid pregnant, and then she'll be almost like a kid for me. Now, what we're looking at, you can, you can, I'm sure you've covered this in your own mind about who's right in this story. Anybody? Is Sarah? Go look at what she does next. So he went into Hagar and she conceived. So it wasn't Abram. We'll just say that. Okay? He hasn't had a problem. Really, she did. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now, ladies, just fess up. Standard competitive urge. You just found out it wasn't the guy. You're woman enough to make a child. Sarai, your mistress, isn't. There is a there's a reason women feel things like um, uh, barrenness or unable to have kids or uh, going through menopause. Uh, um, they don't. It feels like they are half women. Um, I remember when Leslie we were first married. Uh, we didn't think we could have kids. It was, it was a major spiritual battle, struggle about everybody we knew was getting knocked up. And, um, and you were going to showers all the time. And uh, it's one of the reasons we bought the house. We didn't think we could have kids. Oops. <laughs> now, some of this, you, the scriptures don't say, but some of this may be the residue. Remember what we looked at last week 
He went out where the Lord told him to go. He goes to Canaan, and then he keeps going on to Egypt, though the Lord didn't tell him to go on to Egypt. That's where he gets into trouble giving his wife away, and it's not until he comes back to Canaan, to the place where the Lord promised him things, where he had made an altar to the Lord, that he's sort of back on track. Hagar is a residue of that trip. She's an Egyptian slave. And she's been with the family 10 years, since he was 75, Sarai was 65 in Egypt. Now he's 85, she's 75. And all of this is, what I'm getting at, and I want you to look at this in the worst possible light. These are people not planning how they're going to make their life right. What they expect out of life, they make it right this way. They make this plan. So Hagar's looking at it with contempt at her mistress because she's pregnant. Sarai then goes to her husband. Of course she does. Now it's his fault. May the wrong done to me be on you. If a woman came for counseling with that kind of mind, uh, it'd be unacceptable. You say, "You know, shut the heck up." What do you th- What do you think you're saying? That you would say to your husband after you put him up to this, so you could have a baby, because it went sideways on you. Your blade. I gave my maid to your embrace, and when she saw she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. Another thing that we do is we like to get the Lord's uh, imprimatur, uh, United Laboratory seal of of whatever uh, that we are somehow in the right. We make arrangements for our lives that seem to be the best idea at the time and they're not the best idea and somehow we got to not only blame the other person because you're removing causality from yourself as far as you can and secondarily anything that that uh, remains you want to have God on your side in doing it. But Abram had said to Sarai, behold your maid is in your power do to her as you please. He bails. I, I, I don't want you thinking the best of these people. <laughs> then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. This is Kardashians. This is bad behavior. And and it's not, let's, let's get, get, it's not like some of the paintings, I didn't put one of the paintings up because, you know, it had the tragic, you know, 75-year-old woman, hot Egyptian maid, getting pregnant, Lord, remember, Sarai is drop dead. Okay, so it really is like the Kardashians, you know, you got, you got a drop dead older woman, Drop dead. Well, we don't even know. So Hagar could have been homely. But she can get pregnant. But it's so harsh. The treatment is so harsh that the slave runs away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur. <coughs> south, west. And he said, Hagar, maid of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, 
I will so greatly multiply your descendants that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man, his hand against every man and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now, it's a wonderful pick up all the pieces the Lord does for Hagar. It creates the Ishmaelites, which are the grandparents of the Arabs today. You know, so the problems we have now are the problems we had in this little tussle over a baby and bad attitudes between maid and mistress. Um, but Ishmael was going to become great, and that was a promise to her. Now, these are the kinds of promises. Abraham was given that kind of promise. Um, and now uh, Ishmael, or, or Hagar, is given it. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, Thou art a God of seeing. Now, she has seen the angel of the Lord, and she thinks it's a God. She says, Thou art an Elohim of seeing, one of the gods of seeing. And it's not that he saw her affliction, because she explains it. For, she said, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? You're the kind of God you could see, is basically what she was dealing with. You're the kind of God you could see. Now, I don't know what, where we're going with this, where we say, what, we're not getting a whole lot of traction out of this, Evan, um, other than don't be like these people. We're supposed to be children of Abraham, you know, followers of faith, but uh, um, what we're getting at is I have this big chunk of Galatians here on the side. It's looming over the, the text. There's a reason, because it's about this story in Galatians. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. Okay, now, what we're, what we're dealing with here, and this, this actually happened in history, this problematic you circumstance. And St. Paul, <coughs> as you know, has, we covered a number of the passages last week out of Romans and, and uh, some in Galatians, um, has a strong view that our faith, or that the faith of Abraham was the um, the gospel being believed, not the gospel of promise, but the gospel um, mechanism at the time of the founding of the Jewish people in such a way that it was superior to Judaism. Okay? He was, before he was a Jew, and they argued last week before he was circumcised, the promise came, he believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, What's interesting is the turning up of this story of Sarah and Hagar in the book of Galatians. But we have to go back a little bit and kind of skim through Galatians 3 and um, uh, through 4. And I want you to look at the first section at the end of chapter 3. It talks about us having been confined under the law, the nature of uh, the Jewish faith. And he's trying to set the Galatians free from the effect of Judaizers up from Jerusalem claiming that Christianity needed to get more Jewish. And 
He said it was a custodian. It wasn't the thing that you really were. The, the, the spiritual experience was not the law. The spiritual experience, verse 29 there in bold, if, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So he's hanging the, 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 the nature of Abram's believing the promise and the promise itself. Last week he talked about uh, it being in the singular and not in the plural and therefore pointing to Christ. We are Christ's and therefore we have this inheritance uh, through Abraham's promise. And uh, in the middle part he's arguing more about what it is like to be a slave uh, under these guardians, under these trustees, um, and how different Christianity is. So verse 7 of chapter 4 there in Galatians. So through God, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were in bondage to beings that by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What became of the satisfaction you felt? Now that's a verse I want you to be thinking about because it's the distinction that Paul is going at after the, the circumstance of Sarah and Hagar. And it's an odd, an odd allegorization of the Sarah and Hagar problem. But he wants you to know that belief in the promise and redemption um, justification in faith alone is a critical difference between that and religion. He's been trying to stop religion from entering the Galatians' mindset, keeping days, seasons, years, whatever pagan memories they had, whatever Jewish introductions they were getting. He said, what became of the satisfaction you felt? What became of that excitement you had of believing in Jesus the Christ? Verse 18, for good purpose it is always good to be made much of, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, with whom I am again in travail, until Christ be formed in you. I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So this is a, this is a, a, a spiritual problem that will follow you through your life. It will follow you in conversations with other believers. It will follow you in church selections over the years as you move to different towns and get involved with various things. People you then admire who are then saying different, uh, uh, different ideas than this. And he's trying to, he, he's going in like he's, he's trying to lead them to the Lord again. What became of the satisfaction you felt? I'm in travail again. I'm, I'm, I'm going through childbirth pangs with you again because I want Christ to be formed in you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and one by a free woman. Okay, now we're back into the Genesis moment. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, the son of the free woman through promise. Now, first off, Paul misses 
take an allegory 101, okay? He is arguing, you would think, for the Gentile mission, right? Hagar was a Gentile. <laughs> she was an Egyptian. She was the outcast. She was the slave. What could be better? Diversity, you guys, come on. Show the Gospels multicultural and all that. He's not that concerned about, I mean, in another situation he might be. He might use another situation where the nations are mentioned. But here, he wants to make a distinction between who's the slave and who's free. All right? The son of the slave was born according to the flesh. In other words, carnal knowledge occurred. <coughs> Hagar got knocked, knocked up and had a baby. Now, it's also happened to Sarah when she has the baby next week. But it was a promised baby. Sarah gave Hagar to Abram because she knew science. She knew what happened. When a man and woman love each other very much, then babies happen. She could make a baby for her husband. She could get this thing underway that needed to be done. Now this is an allegory, verse 24. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now that's where it just got dumped on the... Uh, he, perhaps he's, a, he's been a little bit annoyed in the Galatians letter. Oh, you idiots. Saying people who preach a different gospel should go to hell. And now he's trying to deal with this. I'm, I'm really... I'm, I'm having a difficult time with this. Let me do this. I'll make the Jews Gentiles. I'll make the Jews the slaves. For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For what is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in travail. For the children of the desolate one are many more than the children of her that is married. So we are children of promise. We're the Gentiles. We are the, the promise was in faith. It was not what was promised to Abram, lots of kids, father of multitudes. That's, that was the physical promise, but that's not what saved him. What saved, what, what he was reckoned to righteousness in was that he believed God. That he believed God. You're given a different promise. Jesus Christ died for your sins. You believe he was raised again on the third day, sent to be with the Father. And belief in his name, calling on his name, forgiveness of sins, life eternal. Different promise. Same valuable thing to God. God likes to be believed. Now, you can tell for all of, we just went through an awful situation, and Abraham doesn't get a lot better in the story. Um, and it, you might say, you know, I have some commonality with Abraham. I've made a bunch of dumb decisions. Um, now, what's the, when Abram is right, when Abram is getting God's commending, when he says Abraham was a friend of God, it's not because of these moments. The Lord wants to kick Abraham down a flight of stairs. It, it, 
it's it's his faith. It is when God asks something of him that he just he just believes it. Sometimes he fights a little bit, then he believes it. We are looking for the kind of faith Abram had, absolutely trusting God. And if you trust God, what the threat is in this passage in Genesis we're looking at is that Abram and Sarai are trying to come up with other ways to fulfill the promise. You know, ways that seem right to you. Ways that seem like they would be, well, this will do. Why don't you uh, sleep with my mate? Now, again, that wasn't immoral to have another wife. And, and uh, it was just not what the Lord seemed to be wanting. They kind of figured that it would be Abram and Sarai, and, and it wasn't working out. Ten years later, after mm-hmm. been in Canaan ten years, she's still not pregnant. His other concubines are getting pregnant. But those, those are his concubines. They don't credit Sarai at all. So she says, okay, why don't I give you this woman as a concubine? That way I'll get the credit of the baby. Then she finds out the emotional baggage that comes on with it. The distinction is Hagar represents religion that did not satisfy, that did not fix it. The Jewish religion going on from Moses to Christ till the temple was destroyed in 70 AD didn't save anybody. It was a failure. It was, as he says, in Galatians, a custodian that held you in check. That's all it was. It wasn't the gospel. What was going on with the gospel were those people in the Old Testament who sought God, who pursued God, who believed God. Those people were credited with righteousness. See the list in Hebrews of all those people. Now it's a... What's... Where it's actually rubber meets the road is not just the theology of the thing that says, Sarah is the free woman. You're set free by belief in the promise. You are not the mechanism of you getting around the failure of the promise to be met. So many people want to make a religion that fits the bill of being called Christianity. Now, a little later, I will jump ahead. Where was it? Uh, second page above the picture on the left-hand side, when God is speaking to him um, about giving him a child, and he says in red there, verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael might live in thy sight. Can't this be good enough? Can't what all the... All the stuff we do religiously, why can't that be good enough Christianity? I go to church, I baptize my kids, um, you're like a kid with a crayon, drawing a big temple. I, I stole that illustration from Rudyard Kipling when he was talking about the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City. He said it was like a child with his tongue in his cheek laboriously drawing simple shapes and making awful architecture. But that's what we do. We make a religion. We step in and offer Hagar to our husbands. Not actually, but, I mean, metaphorically. 
we're going to get this done. We need to have a religion that will have all the right names attached to it, that will get us doing things like baptizing, we'll be doing things like making churches, we'll be doing things like getting into fights with other Christians, you know, good Christian stuff. But it won't satisfy. It's not the freedom that we have in believing the promise. And too often it's because what became of the satisfaction you felt? What, what became of what it was to believe in the promise and so be saved where you didn't need to go do some religious performance to feel like you had uh, accomplished your religion? When uh, you have a faith you heard me say maybe in church that faith is an uh, issue of lordship. You are expressing what you think is Lord when you believe something. You either believe you, you believe your psych teacher, you believe God, you're expressing who you have faith in. So it's a matter of lordship, and you have to choose. What, what Paul's drawing here between Sarah and Hagar is one is the freedom that we have in Christ by faith, which is takes care of it. And the other is the law of the Jews, in this case directly, with days, seasons, months and years, <clears throat> circumcision, Sabbaths, trampling the Lord's courts, priesthoods, all the things that you know that you could cobble together and offer to your husband as a concubine to make this religion. And you could play out some of you are young families with brand new kids. You could play out the next 20 years where you raise your kids in fake Christianity, pretend slavery, thinking it's Christianity. But until faith comes, until the promises of God are believed, you haven't stepped from Hagar to Sarah. And we make, just like in this circumstance, when you're moved by your own designing, when you're moved by your own designing, you're making a religion, you're drawing the pl floor plan of your temple, when you're f th uh, stressing certain rites, I, you know, you may have bu bumped into Christians who keep foot washing as a sacrament <clears throat> because Christ washed the feet of the disciples. There's some that keep that as a sacrament. Others, you know, old school, it's the Eucharist and baptism. But we were made to be changed not by any religious act. Now, we're going to get to that a little bit further. First, chapter 17, here back on the first page, when Abram was 99 years old. So it's like 24 years after he's called out of Haran. Ishmael's been alive for 14 years, or 13 years, 13 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Now that might be, remember, the, the, when it says the Lord appeared, it's the name of God. But that's probably Mosaic, because Moses was introduced to the name of God. God introduces himself as God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face. Now what's interesting here is that you've got, according to Paul, two covenants alive, you know, in Abram. 
One is the covenant of the people that would descend from him physically. And one was the covenant of faith. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Abram meant exalted father. Abraham meant father of multitudes. So. You no longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of the multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Then he has the sign of the covenant there in red. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised which I don't know how common it was in antiquity, but it's, um, and, the, and the instructions given were given for it. Now, what we have in this is that Paul has argued um, here on page 2, right-hand side, Romans chapter 4, verse 10. How was it then reckoned to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received circumcision as a sign or seal of the righteousness which he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. So his real covenant of faith in the promise was actualized and effected before he had uh, the sign of the, of the promise, the sign of the, 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 the a sign that was going to go along with the physical side of things. And only half of the physical side, only the guys are going to get, get this done. The purpose, now listen to this, it doesn't say that the purpose was so that Christians would pick up circumcision as a, as a sign of faith. The reason he does this is not so that we, that we see that the pattern is always the thing signified and the sign in that order. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them. And likewise the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also follow the example of the faith which our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The point was it worked without circumcision. So all the people who weren't circumcised, this shows that Abraham's belief in the promise was being set free from the circumcision. The promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, when we look at, too often we look at Christian religious forms, some people would say that baptism is like circumcision, a sign of your conversion. Even Baptists would say that, right? That it's a sacrament that is a sign and a, and a, a seal of your conversion. Uh, tragically, it becomes so formalized even in Southern Baptist circles that 
it's no longer representing any real passing from death to life. It just happened to be 14. You walk the aisle, you get baptized. Um, but it doesn't actually, it's, it says that you're set free from that. In the Colossians passage, that little inset on the left there, Colossians 2, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. You were buried with him in baptism, which you were, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. That which happens in the believer, even the signification, the sign of your conversion, the sign of faith, is not a religious act. The sign of religious conversion is the life in Christ, because we were circumcised in the Spirit in Christ. We were baptized in faith. So it's a, just to, just to, to pull back from the precipice of a life filled with religion and smells and bells and men with clerical collars and whatever sort of, you know, I was raised a Southern Baptist, so those sorts of traditions are not natural to me, but Baptist traditions are all that they make the church to be. But Christ was doing something in you that faith brought about, including you in the promise of Christ, and then signified it. How do you know someone's a Christian? Because they're on the church rolls? How do you know someone's a Christian? What does 1 John talk about? Being assured of your salvation because of certain things. Love for the brethren, righteousness, not believing heresy, all sorts of good things if you read through 1 John. But it's not, did they, do they have a baptismal certificate hung on their wall? Does their mother have one tucked away to prove, when she gets a little nervous about your walk, that yes, you are a Christian? A physical nation, the physical covenant through Abraham, for every male child, even for the slaves captured in war, they all had to be circumcised. It was a signification of a physical promise that they were participating in by their physical presence as a descendant of Abraham and a possession of Abraham. What's interesting, here on the left-hand side, right after he says, we'll start back with verse 17, um, he promises that on the previous page that Sarah was going to be um, the mother of the peoples that he was being promised. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Now this is a little moment you might want to recognize. We know later, we know the story later in tonight's lesson about Sarah laughing when the Lord in person tells her. She thought she was laughing privately, but she wasn't. Abraham's laughing. Much easier for anyone to believe Abraham, wherever he went, called out by the Lord, wherever he stopped, he built an altar to the Lord, offered sacrifices. For a couple millennia coming, the Jews were going to continue to have a place where altars were raised and sacrifices were offered. That's natural human religious behavior. 
his religious moment is, is he going to believe God when God is telling him face to face? Because it didn't say earlier that he appeared. The Lord appeared to him. That doesn't happen too much in my spiritual walk. Abraham falling on his face and laughing at the promise. Would you rather, I mean, you don't have to tell me now, you don't have to even come back to the Bible study next week. Um, let me give you another example. You have a rich man. You have a poor man. And the question is, who's more righteous? Which man looks like Donald Trump? Poor man looks like, you know, a struggling guy. You automatically think the poor man, because we're trained to think that. We're trained to think in certain categories without... We're also trained to think it is more religious, more right to have more religion. The promise was a pretty straightforward one. I'm going to get your wife pregnant. Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And so Abraham then offers God the option. Why don't we do this the way we had worked it out? You know, back when life was so good in the family, 10 years ago when my wife gave me her handmaid and all hell broke loose, Let's do it that way. Why can't Ishmael live in your sight? Why can't just church be good enough for you, Jesus? Why can't just attendance and, and um, pledging money be good? Why can't we have that work out for you? <clears throat> yeah, if you want to be a slave, if you want to have religion hang over your head and not the freedom you have in Christ, that's the way you want to go. That's fine. God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, and he promises to do good for Ishmael. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, for whom Sarah shall bear to you at this season next year. Now, we're now told in the New Testament that this covenant was to the people of faith. That world spread, that gift to so many, the multitudes, was going to be the people who, who believed. Now, Abraham has lots of moments where he's wobbly, where he sins, where he doesn't seem to react with circumspection. But in Romans 4.18, it says there on the right-hand side, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead because he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He considered him, he considered the old lady, he had laughed when it had been told him, and uh, it says, verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. 
but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. He had... This was, an ad, this was an adult moment. You're all adults, right? Except for Rosalie. Um, this, was a, this was a time of commitment. It wasn't like, I believe the promise, I'm going to have sex with my wife. I know she's 85. Well, she's 89 at this point. Yeah, but God promised, honey. We got we to gotta go do it. No, this is, you got to cut all the men in your tribe. And there are hundreds. Remember, he went out to war with 380 guys. All those guys have got to show up at headquarters with the new order of the day is you're going to have your unit cut off. That's how it's going to, with an obsidian knife. And no antiseptic, maybe booze, maybe some, maybe some beer to kill it, but you're going to be everybody, Ishmael on up. The next paragraph Everybody in the household, slaves included, were circumcised, including Abram. We know better. We know about doing this when the kid's like well, in the hospital, still can't learn to resent you yet. <laughs> this is faith. This isn't, oh, I'm committed to bearing the child of the promise, honey, you got to keep trying. No. We're going to have the sign of this be really difficult. So difficult, even in the Old Testament, people didn't want to do it. Remember when Moses' wife gets really ticked at him because Moses hadn't circumcised his son Gershom, and the angel of the Lord tried to kill Moses, and she had to quickly circumcise her son, who was surprised, I assume. But I want you to look when even though it's handed to you in such a way that the life of freedom in Christ by faith alone this was an amazing month of reformation this was faith alone no religious act faith alone you received the promises of God you were had it imputed as righteousness to you because you believed in your God that just in many cases doesn't sound as spiritual as people who join a monastery. You know, even when it's in Monty Python, when the guys are wandering along the street and hitting their heads with a board and singing in Latin, that, even that seems more spiritual than a bunch of Christians like you guys sitting around just believing in Jesus. You're just not good enough. And you sometimes feel that. We, we want to do it... We want to set up the pieces. We want to have the art show up the way we want. I encourage you to look more at Abraham's faith because it's not the promise he believed. It was that he believed. He did not weaken. And in spite of, he thought it was a joke. I'm 99. I'm being promised a kid by next year. My wife's been barren for, I don't know, 30 years. Who do you think you are? It's not my problem anyway. Why, does it, why can't it be Ishmael? I got all sorts of options, but he goes ahead and claims the promise in cutting off the end of his unit. No distrust made him waver. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So I want to encourage you as you think about 
what it is to be a Christian, that it is not the signification, all that Christendom offers us, and it's offered us some beautiful things, some wonderful things, maybe even some real saints somewhere along the line. But think about the glory that is in the promise given you. Abraham has left a man standing in the desert with a few hundred men around him in his tribe, and he's being told he's going to be the father of multitudes. That's the promise. And everything he does or doesn't do has to do with whether or not that's going to happen. And though he could produce offspring, he's still fully convinced now that God was going to do it as he said through Sarah. Verse 22 there of Romans 4, that is why his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. But the words, was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone. You mean our Bible study in the backyard of 325 North Pole? But for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him that raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Notice how it's the belief with a different promise. It participates in the promise of Abraham. The promise of Abraham is there saying you are part of a multitude that is given over to uh, the... that that fulfilled the promise to Abraham through faith. But our promise, he believed in the promise of the multitudes. We believe in the forgiveness of sins through the work of Jesus Christ, who was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, in Romans 9, right below that, speaking of the Jews, speaking of what they have, because you're standing, you're standing... In, in 2016, 2016 years after the main events, and um, a lot of water under the bridge, a lot of churches built, a lot of religious wars fought, a lot of theological arguments, a lot of popes and anti-popes. There's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of religion going on. And for the, Duke, for the Christian, for the Gentile, for the Galatian, for the Roman, for this, somebody hearing this message of Jesus Christ who they just heard about as a guy in the last half hour, they were without hope, without God in the world. They did not know any of this. The Jews had had all of the, you might say, the pretentiousness of the true religion. It says there in Romans 9, They are Israelites, and to them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and of their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. There is no doubt. You look at Christendom, and you say, yes, you're a bunch of tools. But, many wonderful things are, you might say, um, enshrined, I don't want to use that word too freely, in the the faith of our fathers, the history of the church. It's mostly a, a, a tale of great disappointment, but... Um, just like the Jews, just like the Israelites. Pretentious religion, fake religion, religion that decides to be on the surface, is always going to have the problems that Hagar brought into the family. It's going to bring your own plan of making religion work for the family, having Ishmael live for you, is going to cause its own problems. But don't badmouth, just like you wouldn't badmouth the Israelites, we say, we have nothing to do with the law of Moses, but hey, it was the law of God to Moses. 
Hey, there was a temple in Jerusalem that was glorious. Hey, there was the horse through the kings and the Lord's dealing with them. But it is not as though the word of God had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants. So it, it's saying, this is so incisive. It's not all the natural descendants and all who believe. It's only those who believe. And all that were descendants of Abraham are not descendants of Abraham, unless they share the faith of Abraham. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are reckoned as descendants. That's how probably in his mind he was switching back and forth. And I'll make Hagar the mother of the Jews. Because that's the slavery. That's the flesh. That was the fleshly answer to the problem of no kid. But God says, why don't you just believe me? I'm telling you this season next year. Now, the picture, you got a picture because I know you wanted to have something to look at because you're people who have these things called phones. It's kind of like a phone. <laughs> Pretend it's like that. The next verse is, this is the scene, I forget who the artist is. And the Lord appeared to him by the Oaks of Mamre. Remember the Oaks of Mamre were just outside of Hebron. Uh, I think they're probably not oaks like we have oaks. They're like terebinths. And supposedly the terebinths are still standing from that day. I mean, they're held up by all sorts of metal armature, but it, that would have happened over just 500 years or 1,000 years, not 4,000 years. So you know how people get about shrines. Uh, I think a few of the trees have disappeared entirely by the 500s because people, pilgrims, were pulling off pieces. You know. So let's not get physical about this religion. He's at the Oaks of Mamre. And Mamre's a dude. It's not a special name. It's Mamre the Amorite. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men stood in front of him. When he saw them, he ran to the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I fetch a morsel of bread, which he then goes off and creates a big buffet. Morsel of bread. It's all Middle Eastern hospitality. He doesn't know these, who these dudes are. I included that verse, Hebrews 3, 13, 2. Do not neglect to show hospitalities to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. He was entertaining angels unawares and God. So he makes this, tells Sarah to get the meal together. Make him a sandwich, honey. She says, I'm 89 years old. I don't have to make any sandwiches. <laughs> Actually, she did it. And they said to him, verse 9, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. Now at this point, probably the first moment, Abraham looks sideways at the guys and goes, Who are these guys? I don't know them. And they ask, by name, for my wife. Remember, Abraham had a bad habit of giving her away to people. I don't know if he was thinking that at the moment. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you in the spring, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now it's beginning to sound just like what he had told to Abraham earlier that year, same year. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. 
So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I've grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abram, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you in the spring, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. It's one of the most personal moments that, of God in the history of the Bible. No, you did laugh. Uh, that would have made her terrified at that point. But like Abram, things that were not being told them that they had believed and acted on and are still facing it, every day they're facing it. Are you going to believe? And at each point you have to ask yourself if you're going to be of the faith of Abraham, do I believe what he has promised me? Not do I believe the replacement religion I have created in the name of Jesus. But do I believe the promises of Jesus Christ, for the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the walk with Christ, the change in life, the things that the Lord promised you? Do you believe in your life eternal? Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? Do you believe? Is, it, is this too hard for the Lord? Is it, when we tend to think of this as unimportant things being made in the promise of Christianity, and we think, in many cases, it's impossible. How could we be good? How could we be pleasing to God? How could we be all these other things? Is anything too hard? We don't want to be derisive when God makes us these promises. Galatians and the uh, fruit of the Spirit. Um, Sermon on the Mount. Whatever you look at that talks about the life of the Christian, We don't want to say we did not laugh. Now, I want to encourage you to find the simple Christian life that exists in faith, believing the promise, that is lived in that kind of faith, that is not replacing that faith. As you received him, so live in him. Live by this faith so that you don't get caught up in the pretense of religion. It has all the right names attached to it. doesn't say anything Mormon about stuff. There's no Scientology. But you know the difference between a walk with Christ that is in the new covenant of faith and a walk with Christ that is in the old covenant of Judaizing. Now, in this passage, in this moment, I bolded the word husband. After I've grown old and my husband is old. That's the word Adonai. It is where Peter says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, in Peter 3, that's the moment. It's not calling Abraham Lord. It's referring to him as Lord. Adonai is the word Lord. And her, just her normal reference to her husband was Lord. Not her special court, court appearance of voice. That's just a side piece of information you can think on it later, but I want you to be thinking primarily about um, the gift we have in faith and what distinction it is. Freedom versus creating stuff that is all your own way. If it's something the Lord told you to do, strong argument for it. You believe God and you do. It's like 
like the circumcision, right? He was told to circumcise everybody, so he circumcised everybody. So if you're told to do something, you do that something. You believe it, you do it. But all that we've invented, all that we've tricked Christianity out to be, does not have that argument. Now, there's one more quick topic there at the end. This is the Oaks of Mamre. Next chapter, chapter 19, is the story of Lot in Sodom. And we're not going to cover that because that's not the life of Abraham. It's all about Lot in Sodom. But this is the scene right before that. So the two angels that show up in Sodom are the two other guys that are with the Lord in this meeting. And just as they're getting up to go, then the men set out from there and they looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them and set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? <coughs> Seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by him. No, I've chosen him, that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, he's basically saying, I'm going to do something. <coughs> I could tell Abraham or not. I guess I will because this story needs to come down to us. To those who are the descendants of Abraham in faith. Then he tells Abraham, this was Soto voice to himself, or to his two angel friends, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. They were told us a few chapters earlier, they were a very <coughs> wicked city, back when Lot chose that region to live in. So everybody around you is praying for, to the gods, for the gods to do something about Sodom. And their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, God makes it look like he's heard how bad it is. He's telling Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, I'm walking east towards Sodom because I'm going down there. It's down in the valley from the high, land, uh, high country where Mamre was. Down into Sodom. I'm going to find out if the prayers that have come to me, the, the supplications, how accurate were they? And I will know. I don't know if that plays with your Hellenistic categories well or poorly. Deal with it. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So the two angels get going. God stands in front of the Lord. I don't know what you're going to remember. Abraham has met with the Lord any number of times. It seems that he finally recognizes them in the moment. He has unawares entertained them and then became aware of what he was dealing with. And since he knows he's going down to Sodom to decide whether he's going to do something, and he sort of figures he's heard the same stuff and he knows what's going to happen, he says, Wilt thou indeed destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou then destroy the place and not spare it for fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, if this was an old-style pagan god, he just would have smote the guy right there and just said, you don't talk to me that way. <laughs> but God, I think, loves to see his own righteousness and justice 
defended by his people, even to him. Now, obviously, Abram, Abraham has a vested interest in Lot being preserved. And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. If he could find 50 righteous people in this town, he wouldn't destroy this bastion of wickedness. So you, can want to, you might want to count up. We only have about 30 at the Bible study. We're, this is grant you're all righteous. Is God going to spare Moscow? I hope there are some other Christians in town. But that's a, that's a pretty, good, uh, pretty good ratio, whoever whatever size Sodom was. And then, no pun intended, but the first Jew, Jews him down. <laughs> I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. That's, you know, standard bargaining. I am nobody, but hey, would you let me have it for 550? Suppose 40. Oh, suppose five of the 50 righteous were lacking. Would destroy the city for the lack of five? I will not destroy it for 45. Well, you, again, Jews them down, all the way down to 10. And if you looked at the story, next chapter, you realize there weren't 10. There was probably only one. Because mom wasn't, daughters weren't. Only Lot comes out with any recommendation. But it's an interesting... Um, if you want to have... If, if nothing else, not only is freedom calling you away from um, the pretension of religion... But freedom is personal. Your faith, your God, promising you what you believe you will get, believing his promises. And this is one of those moments, even if you think it's just a metaphor of how the Lord, if he were dealing with limited man and his ability to understand things, or you believe that this is what God, that God was changing his mind on the fly about how many he'd save the city for. And he hadn't yet figured out how bad Sodom and Gomorrah were, really, because he hadn't gotten down there yet. Whatever you think, it's really personal. It's both personal on the side of the man who had faith. I love the moments where Abraham laughed, and Sarah laughed, and then got afraid, and denied she had laughed, and the Lord said, no, you did laugh. That's what friends talk like. That's what a real acquaintances, real persons deal with each other like. You want that religion. You don't want you don't want the religion of some smells and bells. You don't want the religion of of uh, decoration, where we decorate the doctrines of the prophets and the apostles, and we don't know the God. We're the head of the fan club of God, but we're not his next door neighbor. And you know that I've always given this illustration. You want to be Eric Clapton's next door neighbor. You don't know who played bass on the third album. The head of the fan club knows. And he has a seminary devoted to that fact. We want to be the Lord's friend, like Abraham has said of him. And a couple times, I think in Isaiah and Psalms, that he was a friend of God. You want to be that, even if sometimes your commentary looks a little uppity. 
Remember, Moses goes before the Lord to stop him. Daniel, David goes before the Lord to stop him of doing something. Hezekiah goes before the Lord to stop him from doing something. These were the people that were righteous in the Old Testament. And it showed the kind of relationship they had. Let's stay to the promise, the state of the covenant that Christ gave in faith. Move away from the other one. That's the end. And I went over five minutes, and I'm very sorry. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Would you please kill all those crows? In your son's name, amen. Amen.